This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Today, we're churning out a podcast about the history of a delicious everyday foodstuff, butter. To spread the word, we're joined by food historian Dr. Annie Gray, who can milk a subject like this until the cows come home. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. So, Annie, let's start with the most obvious question. How is butter made and has this changed much? It's a really simple process. It's something that everybody can do at home, actually. So all you need is cream. So for much of history, that meant you took milk, usually from the evening before's milking. You spread it out in really big, wide, shallow pans and you let the cream rise to the surface. You skimmed the cream off, leaving skimmed milk behind, which is where we get that name from. And then with that cream, you would then agitate it. So churn it, or if you're doing it at home, you can put it in a jar and shake it. However you do it, you manage to agitate, shake, churn that cream until eventually butter, the fats, separate from the buttermilk. And you end up with a sort of yellowy mass and then this kind of fairly anemic looking liquid that comes off. That liquid, the buttermilk, goes off, just as did the skimmed milk. And you take your fat, which you then wash. You then churn it a little bit more to try and get as much buttermilk out as possible because the buttermilk will make it go rancid. And then you press it, usually using things called scotch hands in the periods that we're going to go on to talk about. You press all of the buttermilk out. And if you're doing it at home, you can just use two wooden spatulas or two wooden spoons. And then you shape it. You might then flavour it, salt it so that it keeps well or perhaps add in herbs, something like that. But that's really all you're doing. It's just take cream, make it move, turn it into butter. And that's been done really since the Neolithic period. So it is as almost as old as sort of cooking itself. And it's particularly something that you find in northern climates. So places that are the Mediterranean and further south tended to be oil-based cultures, olive oils and other such things. And in the north, you tended to find animal fats used, but also butter. The ancient Greeks referred to those in the north as butter eaters. And the Japanese as well, they used to call people who ate butter, butter stinkers. So there's always (laughs) been a kind of division, but it's very much something that's northern European. I was about to ask you when it all started, but you say the the, the Neolithic period, so around the period that uh, Stonehenge was being constructed. Yes, you can imagine the builders of Stonehenge, all the people carting the stone, sitting down to a piece of bread and butter, just as we would today in, in some respects. That's remarkable, isn't it, really? It really brings a tangible sense of our relation to our an- ancestors just through it's that. It's a really good way to make milk transportable. Cheese is the other one, obviously, and dairies did produce cheeses as well. But if you've got this liquid product, milk, and it goes off, it goes rancid, and it's not easily 
transportable, turning it into something solid that will keep longer is absolutely crucial. So a lot of these things that are very, very old products that are relatively simple production processes really come about because of the need to transport something and keep something which is otherwise not very, very easy to handle. What were the key moments in the history of butter making through the ages in England specifically? It's all very much tied into agricultural change and also technological change, so really farming. You've got advances such as year-round lactation, which comes about in the 16th century. So that's when you can feed your cows and keep them lactating throughout the winter. Previously, butter was very, very seasonal. Cows obviously are only lactating when they have calves. And up to that point, really calving happened in the spring. So most of your butter was made between sort of March through to about September. Then you've got things like ice house technology, which comes to Britain really at the very beginning of the 17th century. That enables dairies to become cooler spaces, butter to be kept better. And then you have the improvement of cattle breeds in the 18th century. So that big era where we think of names such as Turnip Townsend and rotation systems, the kind of stuff we all learnt at school, it's a really huge period for dairying because cow breeds themselves are improved to give bigger yields of milk but also crucially to give milk that has a higher fat content because it's that fat that makes the butter then you've got in the 19th century improvement in transport and in ways to keep your butter including refrigeration starting to come in and at the same time you see churn technology change as well i mean butter really really is something that is basically the same from the neolithic period pretty much all the way through to the medieval period where you start to get kind of not quite factory made churns but churns that are made that are quite universal and where the same design crops up again and again and again. And then in the 19th century, you start to suddenly see development in butter churning and churn technology. And by the end of that century, you're starting to see the start of industrial production of butter. Big churns, no longer stuff that's all made in home, the start of factories and mechanisation. And of course, you also then get the movement in the 20th century, which is a huge thing where you get the invention of margarine as a really competitive fat, something that is much, much cheaper than butter. And then in the Second World War, rationing, which drives people towards margarine, which means that butter is really restricted. Mm. And post-war, when we get to the 1970s, you have all of the stuff coming out of the States, which demonizes fats. This idea that fat is bad for you. Um, very much coming out of the anti-fat lobbying movement in the States. And we now know, completely erroneous as well, you know, fat is not intrinsically bad for you. But that still, I think, leaves a legacy today whereby people distrust butter and tend to go for sort of low-fat spreads, which have their own issues instead. So it's really a, a sort of story, both of technological change and also to some extent of marketing change, I suppose, more latterly. Very interesting. So even though it's been in fashion as a food staple for millennia, it has in recent times sort of undergone a bit of a questioning about its reputation in a way. But it's still nevertheless there and being sold in vast quantities in our supermarkets. Yes. And I think as also as people have started to challenge those ideas in the 1970s, I think butter's really undergone a resurgence as well. Certainly today in Britain, you can get an awful lot of very beautiful artisan made butters and the idea of butter and the valuation of butter as something that really is a very, very lovely product has really come to the fore. Yes, definitely. So a staple food, but why did it become a staple food? Well, first of all, it means you can move milk around. Secondly, it's high in calories, which is something that tended to be in short supply in the past. So anything you can do to get calories into you is good. 
And I think as well, it's a staple food because it tastes good. I mean, we shouldn't forget sometimes that the taste of things really is an important factor. Butter tastes amazing, especially salted butter. It is a stunning thing to eat. <laughs> and it's very, very versatile. There's Irish bog butter. The Irish used to preserve their butter by keeping it in bogs, which were very, very cool places, which sometimes gets dug up. And, the, you know, you get bog butter that's a thousand years old. But I think it becomes particularly massive once you get the start of things like cake making technology, really from the 17th century onwards, where butter becomes a very, very dominant flavour and ingredient in sauces and where you see cooking change to become very, very, very butter based. When we look at English recorded history, who were the biggest butter lovers? Oh, everybody loved butter. I mean, butter, you know, butter's kind of universal. Um, but I would say in terms of time period, the 18th century and the 19th century are the big ones for butter. Not just because there's a lot of history there connected to it in terms of when things change in the technology, but also precisely because of this movement towards things like cakes. When you think today about butter, you often think of it on toast. We do use it in sauces as well, although they're slightly old fashioned, but we use an awful lot of it in baking. And it really is the 18th century and the 19th century where butter in baking becomes a very, very big thing. I mean, I cook obviously quite a lot of recipes from the past and medieval cuisine is very much influenced by the Far East and the Middle East, where oil is more of a thing that's used and where it often will just specify fat or fry in a recipe. Hmm. By the 18th century, butter is being used a lot. And I would say dairy products in their entirety, not just butter, but also cream, really, really huge in the 18th and 19th centuries. What evidence do we have of butter production at English heritage sites? Well, nearly all the English heritage sites would have had a dairy at some point. The trouble is most of them don't survive. English heritage is renowned for having a lot of medieval castles in a semi-ruined state, and they are fantastic. But of course, what we don't see there is a dairy intact. We might be able to surmise where one might have been, but it's not there anymore. But it's safe to say that pretty much any site of prestige, so you're talking castles, monasteries, nunneries, stately homes, farmhouses, anywhere that had a family of any form of standing and indeed for earlier periods anywhere that just had anyone living in it would probably have had a dairy so Stonehenge probably didn't have a dairy but <laughs> pretty much everywhere else there would have been dairying happening yes well we're going to talk about a few of the English heritage sites that would have had a dairy so we're kind of going to play a game of spot the dairy here really starting with Kenwoods on the edge of Hampstead Heath in North London can you tell us about uh, where the dairy was there Kenwood is one of the earliest dairies that you can see intact at an English heritage site. It's what would be often called in the past a hobby dairy. Things called hobby dairies certainly did exist. I prefer to call them ornamental dairies, but they weren't ornamental in the way that we would mean today. So when we say a hobby dairy or an ornamental dairy, it sort of conjures up this idea of something where people went to play, something that didn't really have a function. It's all about sort of aristocratic ladies swanning around, not getting dirty or anything else, and just sort of playing at being some form of dairy maid. You think of sort of Marie Antoinette and the Petit Trianon and those kind of things. But hobby dairies or ornamental dairies were also working spaces. They also had a dairy made in. They might not have been the major dairy for a site. There may well have been another dairy on a farm somewhere that was turning out vast quantities of butter, but they were still working spaces. And the dairy maids that occupied them were very prestigious. It was a good position to have. 
they usually had a much nicer life than many of the other servants. Ken was a really good example of this kind of hobby stroke ornamental dairy. And it's the exact period where we'd expect to see those things. It's absolutely beautiful, the Kenwood dairy. If you go there now, you'll see a dairy from the 1790s, which was part of a complex which was a working farm and also a model farm, which again is another slightly problematic term because people talk about model farms. And I think today we have an idea of a model being, again, something we play with. But model farms in the past were set up by pioneering landowners, people who really wanted to try and push technology to show what the best thing was. It's a model in the sense that somebody who's doing really good work is a model for us all to go after. So a model farm may have been producing on a slightly smaller scale than other farms, but it was very much at the forefront of technology. The dairy at Kenwood, which was built, as I said, in the 1790s, was incredibly advanced. It had pipes leading directly from the dairy to the piggery, for example, so that waste products from the dairy, whether it was whey from cheese or buttermilk from making butter, could go directly to the pigs, because pigs that were fed on dairy products were said to be much, much more flavoursome than, than other pigs. There was an ice house underneath the dairy itself as well, so that the ice could be used both for cooling butter, if it was very, very hot, but also obviously used for um, making ice cream and setting jellies and things. The Kenwood dairy is a beautiful, beautiful building, possibly designed by the Adams who worked on the estate. It's got a sort of pavilion with a dairy in. It's got the dairymaid's quarters because the dairymaid there lived a lovely... She had her own her own um, living room. She had a bedroom above it. And then later on, there was a tea rooms added as well. So the idea at Kenwood was that it was a working dairy. It was a model for other people to come and go, wow, actually, this is how a dairy should work. <laughs> but it was also a place where the lady of the house, Lady Mansfield, could go and she could hang out with her mates. Whether or not she actually did the work, slightly moot point. But dairies were places that were very ornamental, very beautiful, often had things like Wedgwood tiles. And the one at Kenwood is a gorgeous space. And this tea room is being added does show that it was part of the aristocratic sort of round. So if you were an aristocratic lady, you would do the round of your estate. You know, you'd walk round the gardens, you'd do certain things and you'd fetch up in the dairy watching the dairy maid do the work probably and you'd have tea dairies were very feminine spaces they were sort of safe feminine spaces i suppose what we'd call safe spaces today they weren't masculine the dairy maid had almost certainly already had cowpox smallpox so she was a safe person they were imbued with a sort of a whiff of sexuality about them really they were something that dairy maids were heavily objectified but they were spaces women could sit in and they could deal with women's issues so when you go to a dairy it's a really interesting space the Kenwood one is both ornamental a place for leisure a place for work a place to showcase technological change you know it's loads of different things all in one am I right in saying that one of Kenwood's most famous residents Dido Elizabeth Bell worked at the Kenwood dairy while she was living there she did not the dairy that you can see today that was built after she left and got married but she would have worked in the previous incarnation of the dairy she was in charge of the poultry and the dairy which was pretty common for aristocratic ladies at the time and again because she was part of the household this was an extension of her femininity and really would have enabled her to get together with her friends with her family and be part of something that was absolutely what aristocratic ladies should be doing Am I right in saying that the current dairy or the or the dairy that we would see it today is on the perimeter of the sort of estate? Uh, 
Um, it's not entirely on the perimeter. It isn't visible from the house unless you sort of squint or maybe cut down some trees. But it is a walk from the house, certainly. Right. And that's because the farm was attached to it. So you'll find at other sites that the dairies are much, much closer to the houses themselves. But because it was part of this model farm complex, yes, it is further away from the house. But I would say to any visitors that go to Kenwood that it's definitely worth making that walk up to it. Because once you sit outside the dairy looking at the view you understand how these grand estates worked that they were always this mixture of working estate and beauty everything their form and function and ornament and purpose all went together in those estates well another estate is rest park in bedfordshire which we've previously visited on the podcast as well and i gather the dairy here was also quite an ornate building is that right Yes, it was. At Rest Park, the dairy is much more joined to the house. Rest was built in the 1830s, so we've sort of skipped on about 40 years from the dairy at Kenwood. And it's quite a curious little building. If you see it from the outside, it's quite hard to work out because it doesn't have any big windows and doesn't sort of seem to be very well lit. And you'd mistake it for a sort of, I suppose, an ornamental electricity shelter if you didn't know what it was. But when you go around the other side of it, first of all, there are windows. And secondly, when you start to look at it in more detail, you realise it is, in fact, very ornamental. It's got a sort of hint of chinoiserie in the wrought iron, which is across it. And it had stained glass windows as well. So clearly a building of some status. It was almost certainly designed by Thomas, who was the second Earl de Grey, who was a very, very skilled architect. He was an amateur architect, obviously, because as an aristocrat, his primary function was not to work. But <laughs> he was the first president of the Royal Institute of British Architects. And Rest's listing, the whole, re- whole Rest Park itself is listed, rests on this idea that what he did was he reconstructed a French chateau, really, in the grounds in Bedfordshire which was slightly bonkers, but also absolutely wonderful. And so the dairy there harmonises with the house in a way that you don't really see in every site. A lot of the time, dairies and other buildings were kind of added piecemeal, as at Kenwood, where it was designed after the house. And as we'll see at Audley End as well, it's, a lot of them are quite mishmashy, whereas at rest, you've got a building that was designed specifically to go with that house. Am I right in saying that there are historic photographs of the dairy dating from around 1900? Yes, we've got reasonable evidence for the dairy at rest. There are inevitably payments for the dairy when it was built, so we know things about the cornicing and the tiles. But there are two rather beautiful photographs from 1900 which show the interior. And they're particularly useful as later on the dairy was hacked about a bit. It was used in the 1970s as a plant room. And then in 1982, it became the staff club for the Agricultural College, which was then at Rest Park, which did, which was a lovely atmosphere. <laughs> you know, sort of all this stained glass and all the rest of it. But it did mean that quite a lot of the fixtures and fittings were ruined and the ceiling was a bit hacked away and those kind of things. So it's very useful to have those photographs. Uh, speaking of uh, beautiful places, uh, lovely atmospheres elsewhere, we now cross the channel and head over the Solent and onto the Isle of Wight where Osborne was Queen Victoria's getaway and I understand there was a bit of a less conventional dairy there. Probably. It's not certain Um, (laughs) but there was almost certainly a dairy at the children's playhouse, the Swiss Cottage. The Swiss Cottage for those listeners who've not been there it kind of conjures up this idea of a really cute little children's playhouse in the grounds, which is what it was intended for. It is a full-size house. I mean, it's bigger than most of the houses I would suggest that most of us live in. And it is built in the style of a Swiss chalet. So back in the day when it was built, it was 
prefabricated in the local area and brought in. When it was built, it had big stones on the roof, as you would have had in Switzerland, which is supposed to stop avalanches and things like that and snowfall off the roof. And that was a house that was built for the royal children to use, to learn, really. So outdoors, outside it, there were gardens. Each child had their own plot of land where they grew fruit and vegetables, which they sold to Albert at market price. And then inside, there was a dressing room and there was a dining room and a big sort of all-purpose living room, playroom, and also a kitchen with a scullery and then a larder. And that collection that was with the house still survives, sort of, so bits of it survive. Mm. There are dairying pans, cream-settling pans in the collection, and it does seem that they probably did some form of dairying activity there. Certainly Vicky, the Princess Royal, Queen Victoria's eldest daughter, knew what dairying was. She wrote to her mother about dairying when she'd got married and gone off to Prussia. She wrote back and said, honestly, people who have no idea how to make butter, I'm going to have to show them. She certainly knew what she was doing. And it seems that probably the larder had the right kind of fittings to be or double as a dairy. So a dairy's got to have some form of egress. It's got to have some form of drainage for things like the buttermilk and the fact that there's a lot of water being sort of sloshed around. It needs to have a ready supply of water. It needs to be a clean space as well because the point was, you know, butter is very white. It's very pure. You can't have soot around. You also can't have heat around. So that dairy couldn't have been in the scullery or the kitchen at Swiss Cottage because there were stoves in both of them. So it was probably in the larder. And we're pretty certain that the children did learn to make butter there. It's kind of logical because it's so easy to make and it's such a magic moment when you do make it. Any of you who are listening who have made it with your children or just made it for sheer pleasure will know that when the butter finally turns, the clunk happens <laughs> and it's quite a sort of, it's quite an interesting, you just go, wow, that was amazing. You know, you just, I've literally just shaken this and suddenly I've got butter. A eureka so moment. it's kind of a natural yeah. thing. Yeah. Was there a separate dairy at Osborne to serve Queen Victoria and Prince Albert? Yes, there was almost certainly one on the model farm that Albert set up. So again, we're back to this idea of model farms. Prince Albert was really, really keen to further the cause of technology in Britain, in particular when it came to agriculture. He won awards for his own agricultural efforts and he was very much involved in cattle improvement and in model farms. There's a huge one infamously at Frogmore, which had actually a very, very gorgeous dairy. The tiles are unbelievable. So it seems almost certain that there was a dairy down at Barton Farm, which was the model farm on the Osborne estate. So yes, that would have been producing most of the butter. But I mean, you know, the royal household got through butter like, I don't know, I would say I get through. And then I suddenly thought, actually, no, I get through butter like I get through butter. So they did get through (laughs) an awful lot. They were buying it in as well as making it on their own farms. Let's move on to talk about Brodsworth Hall in South Yorkshire, but very north of the Isle of Wight, of course, uh, hundreds of miles north. That was the Victorian country estate of the Tellerson family. Where was the butter produced for the family here? Well, this is slightly different to the other dairies that we've discussed because this one really was a proper working dairy. At the time the dairy was built at Brodsworth, which was the 1860s, this idea of ornamental dairies, hobby dairies, where the aristocratic ladies would go down and watch the work and have tea, that was really very old hat. No one was doing that anymore. So there was no need to build something close to the house where ladies could go and hang out. On the other hand, the idea of model farms was still going really strongly and in fact had really sort of grown partly because of Prince Albert's efforts in that direction. 
So when the dairy at Brodsworth was built, it was part of a model farm. But that model farm wasn't separate to the home farm. It was the home farm. Mm. And for people going, hang on a minute, home farm, model farm, what's going on? Most country houses had huge estates attached to them. And the majority of those estates would be divided up into farms. So when you think of an aristocratic estate, there's the pleasure grounds. Those are the bits that you can go around today, usually. So with the paths and the woodland and the beautiful long waters and little buildings all around. Those are the things that people would just perambulate around where the gardeners would garden. But the wider estate was often extremely large. And that was divided into farms that would be tenanted. And often they're called loads and loads of different things. You know, They are tenanted farms. They just operate independently. It's just that the rents from those farms are then paid to run the estate Mm. but one of the farms would be designated the home farm so whenever you see home farm written somewhere it is that farm and it's only that farm that is directly connected to the family and to the house the stately home that it relates to Ah. so at brodsworth and every other country house there would be a home farm and that is the place where the house would get its eggs from its bacon from usually its milk from all the kind of everyday things that would come from a farm and of course then it would just be eggs being sent to the house if they'd got their eggs from any other farm they'd have had to pay for them because all the other farms were independent so that's how a home farm works it is the farm attached to a country house so in the case of Brodsworth the home farm was a model farm as well it was set up to showcase the best of technology and the dairy was part of that so it was a farm dairy but it was also a model dairy and it was the main dairy to supply all the butter, all the milk, unequivocally all of it to the house. And so this was, this was free dairy products for the Tellison family then, effectively? Yeah, I mean, it's free in that they have paid for the dairy and they pay for the cows and they pay for the upkeep. So it is the same as, as a farmer having free milk. You know, it's still, yeah. there's still a level of, of effort. And the dairy was quite a thing. It was upgraded in 1910, which is when it really did become something to showcase the best of what was going on. And it was so prestigious by then that when you get into the 1920s, King George V and Queen Mary visited it and the local paper called it Cow Palace because apparently it was just so amazing. <laughs> okay. I'll take that as a compliment if I were a, if I were a Tellison. You know, they had Aberdeen Anguses, they had jerseys for the milk, they had Tamworth pigs, they had loads of different species of poultry that were both modern improved varieties and heritage varieties. They had tramways to bring the food in and remove the manure. I mean, you know, it was pretty palatial by that point. The milking parlour at the dairy was later used as a dining room for soldiers that were billeted there in the Second World War. So it was not too shabby. Yeah, lots of layers of history there. Let's move on to talk about one of the sites we've done two podcasts at now, which is Audley End in Essex. It's the former home of the Braybrook family. And I know this this is a site that you've spent a lot of time at, researching recipes for the former head cook, Mrs Crocombe, who we've done podcasts on before. But can you tell us about the dairy there? Well, Dairy Audley is one of those piecemeal dairies so the buildings were built before Kenwood. They were built in the 1760s to 1780s. And then they were changed a lot in 1835 along. I mean, the whole house was changed quite a bit at that point. And what you see between those two times is a, effectively a, a hobby dairy, an ornamental dairy in the 1760s. And in 1835, it stopped being that. There was a door to a private garden that was blocked up. And at that point, that dairy became a working dairy end of kind of thing right if you go to visit Audley End now you'll see it set dressed for the 1880s which is the period that the whole serviced wing has been set dressed to basically because there was a fire in the kitchens in the 1880s so it seemed like quite a good point to showcase that service wing at and 
by the 1880s, it's almost certainly the main dairy. You kind of look at it and you think, oh, this is very lovely and very beautiful. It's got ornamental tiles, all the rest of it. Presumably, this isn't the only dairy for the house. It's miles away from the home farm. It's not that far away from the home farm, but it is very much attached to the house. It is very much in the service yard. Mm. But when we were researching it, we did a sort of back of the fag packet calculation and it would have been possible for the one dairy maid who worked there to turn out the amount of butter that we know was being consumed by the house so it's almost certain that that dairy at Audley End started as an ornamental dairy and by the 1830s and certainly by the 1880s was the main dairy for the house there wasn't another dairy at the home farm so mm. you know that really does show the way in which dairying changed the trajectory of dairying really over the course of the 19th century and did that change of use also change as a result of the Braybrook's fortunes? To some extent. I mean, you see this generally with the aristocracy. Obviously, the 19th century is a period of huge social and political change. And what you find by the middle of the period is that it's becoming harder for aristocrats to make money. Land rents are down, and particularly by the 1880s, land rents are down. So you do see a move towards converting dairies that might perhaps have just supplied the house into much more commercial concerns. We do know that at Audley End they were selling a lot of the excess butter that they made. We've got uh, accounts for labels being printed to go on to butter. So putting it on a more commercial fitting was a general trend that you see in the 19th century. I gather that the uh, person responsible for producing the butter for the kitchens in the 1880s was a lady with a dairy-type name, Fanny (laughs) Cowley. Fanny Cowley, yes, uh, Frances Cowley. She was 30 in 1881 and she was from Gloucestershire and a baker's daughter, which I think probably stood her in quite good stead because a lot of the time dairy maids were called upon to make the bread as well. I think when we did the research into the servants at Audley End, one of the things that really came out was the way in which just through five or six women, so the kitchen maids and Fanny Cowley, you can almost chart the various trajectories of women's lives at that point in time. Mm. So Fanny had worked her way up, worked in various farms in Gloucestershire. She'd worked up, she'd become the dairy maid. But at the age of 30 in the 1880s, you know, that's decision-making time for a woman. Are you going to go on and, and make service life in service your career Mm. or are you going to actively seek a husband and decide to do that instead because the majority of servants did give up work on marriage what we know with fanny cowley is that by 1882 she had probably left by 1883 she was pregnant and gave birth to her first child and was living with the father of her child who was a carpenter and joiner called James Tongue and they went on to have another three children so they had four children in total the first three were all born out of marriage which isn't that unusual to be honest for the working classes I think it's very easy and it's an error that a lot of people fall into to project Victorian middle class mentalities onto working class women and men and actually when you look across the servants just in orderly end quite a lot of them were either born illegitimately or went on to have illegitimate children you know it wasn't difficult to manage oh my mother's ill I need to go back and look after her And that way you don't lose your character, your reference. But in the case of Fanny, she went to go and live with the father of her child. She may well have gone to work for him, but probably not because she was far too senior to go and work as a kind of junior maid in his household. And she ended up marrying him. So she married him between the birth of her third and fourth child. And they later claimed they got married in 1882, but they didn't. And she ended up living till her 80s, looked after by her daughter. She was blind by the time she was in her 60s, but she had a very long and very rich life. 
And Fanny, how would she have collected her milk uh, during her youth as she was working at Audley End? Well, given she was on her own, it was almost certainly brought to her by the cowman. If she was working on a home farm, she might well have gone and got the milk herself, and she may well even have done some of the milking. But at Audley, given the level of butter she was having to make, the cowman would have brought it to her, so the morning's milkings and the evening's milkings to lay out in pans. And Audley M was particularly good for milk. The fifth Lord Braybrook was renowned for his incredible herd of Alderney cows. And they're a breed that now in its pure form is extinct. And they were an incredible cow. They're absolutely beautiful cows. There are photographs of them around. And they're apparently very good natured as well. I mean, lots of cows are, but Alderneys were particularly good for that. More importantly, they gave a lot of milk with a very high fat content. And Lord Braybrook named his cows. A lot of farmers still do this today if they haven't got sort of herds of hundreds and hundreds. And the names are brilliant. They're things like Gossamer and Spermlight and Blaze and Squib and Breeze and Fizz and Glowworm. You know, they're just <laughs> wow. they're kind of like uncow names. They're absolutely yeah. gorgeous. And his farm manager, a man called Hosley, William Hosley, won an award for keeping the dairy books because they showed a really scientific approach to milk yields. So this was quite a big and prestigious operation happening down at Audley End. That's remarkable. Well, I just thought cows were called Mabel and Daisy, but uh, obviously <laughs> not. Um, we'll have to go back to the Victorian way of naming cattle um, for any farmers out there listening. Last but not least, we talk about Boscobel House, which we visited uh, recently on the podcast. It's perhaps best known for its royal oak that served as the hiding place of Charles II uh, before he became Charles II and King. But perhaps less well known is the story of the Victorian farm, which came afterwards, of course, which is now being brought back to life with reenactors and reintroduced livestock as well, and all those sights and smells. Can you tell us a bit more about that Victorian farm at Boscobel? Yes, yeah, so this was when the Evans family came into Boscobel and decided to kind of restore it based on its heritage. But along with restoration goes the fact that you also have to make a bit of money. So unlike all the other dairies that we've looked at, Boscobel wasn't ornamental and it also wasn't part of a model farm. It was just part of a farm. <laughs> you know, mm. the farm at, at Boscobel was the farm. So the farm itself is very much multi-period. You've got a 17th century barn, which involves the cow shed and that kind of thing. But what you can see if you go to that farm, realistically, is the conversion of an estate which was predominantly about feeding the people on the on who lived there to something that was very much focused on dairy production. The estate of Boscobel had been, like most estates, sort of very much an arable estate and grain prices had just bombed in the 19th century. So this was about converting an estate that should be making more money than it was into something that therefore would make money and mm. that meant dairying so if you go there now you can see as you say animals back on the farm and you will also be able to see the dairy which was just a quietly productive everyday working dairy all of these dairies at these properties date from the 18th and 19th centuries is that a coincidence or does it reflect a significant change in food production at this time it's not a coincidence, but it's not quite as simple as changing food productions. It is a reflection of really the eras where things do survive. So if you look at English Heritage's portfolio, a lot of the stuff from earlier eras is in ruins. Whereas we've got quite a lot of buildings from the 18th century and a lot more buildings from the 19th century. That's really the peak where we've got things that we value. Before then, things tended to have fallen down or been built on or been converted. And after then, when you get into the 20th century, those buildings are either still lived in 
or they're not valued. So I suppose the 18th and 19th century is the sweet spot in terms of having stuff that is intact, but also valued from a heritage point of view. But there are changes as well. I mean, the 18th century, the growth of the hobby dairy as a fashion statement means that you've got these very, very beautiful ornamental buildings that later generations didn't rip down because they're absolutely gorgeous. So we don't lose them as much and they're likely to still survive. And in the 19th century, you've got the sort of model farm movement, which is which is similar. What you also get in the 20th century is you get country houses change in terms of their usage. So country houses have been seen to be in, sort of in decline in the 20th century, which isn't quite fair. Some country houses go into decline, some owners become poor, some estates get sold off. But you also have a lot of country house building going on in the 1930s. The difference is that people who are building country houses and who are converting or buying country houses in the 20s and 30s don't want dairies anymore. They can buy their butter. You know, they don't really need a dairy. What they mm. want is a country house they can use to party in. So the, the way country houses are used changes, and that obviously impacts on things like building or maintaining dairies. Speaking of that sort of change then, when did the production of butter first become industrialised, making these dairies that we've discussed kind of redundant? At the end of the 19th century, there's a thing called the de Laval cream separator that's invented in 1878, and that enables you to separate cream without just leaving it out overnight. That's one big move forward. But it's part of a whole raft of changes. Obviously, you know, you had steam power in the early 19th century and now moving towards electricity. And inevitably, you start to get bigger machinery and more expensive machinery. And if it's expensive, it means small-scale dairies can't afford it. It doesn't mean that small-scale dairies stop producing. What it means is that they become slightly more irrelevant and that bigger creameries that can afford the equipment and then use a cooperative system to get milk in start to take over. It starts really in the States where you've got obviously huge amounts of land down to cattle and where the cooperative system and big creameries work very, very well. And I think also where you don't have this kind of pattern of aristocratic dairies, but you do start to see it here. You get the milk marketing board eventually founded and it just it's little and gradual, but ongoing Mm. in country houses. Dairies survive a lot longer than they would elsewhere. So if you've got a small scale dairy in a village or something like that, it might survive. It probably won't survive. If you're on a country house, well, you've got a dairy because you want to, to want to supply your own kitchen. So you've got a lot more motivation for keeping your dairy going. And because there is also a moral imperative there as well, country houses were supposed to care for the poor in the neighbourhood. So selling the skimmed milk cheaply to the local parishioners, the local villagers, was part of what a country house did. So a lot of country houses kept their dairies either attached to their houses or at their home farms for a lot longer than perhaps might have made commercial sense. But the small farmers, small scale farming really does start to get pushed in the 20th century. It starts to become uneconomical to have a herd of only 10 or 20 cows. You need to have 50 or 100 in order to take advantages of the new technology, especially with milking, actually, and, and how you milk cows. And what you see in the 20th century is a a move towards bigger farms, a move towards more commercial setups, and also a move to push women out of dairying. It's the first time for thousands and thousands of years that you see something that has been traditionally associated with women, and which has been women's work, changing really to man's work, which we haven't really touched on, but this is a, a kind of gendered area. The other big change is margarine which comes in from France, really, at the end of the period, and that is hydrogenated animal oils to start off with. Now it's vegetable oils. 
which has then been dyed yellow. So it's not mm. butter. It's got nothing to do with butter. It doesn't taste like butter, but it's cheap. It really scares the butter industry. There's in other countries in particular, there's a lot of regulation over whether or not you can dye. If we took out the yellow colour from our margarine, it would be terribly unappetising. But in this country, you've always been allowed to dye it yellow. And that becomes marketed very aggressively. It's very cheap. It's very easy to use. By the mid-20th century, there's a lot of recipe books being published using margarine instead of butter. And then, of course, you get World War Two, where your ration is two ounces of fat, usually lard, two ounces of margarine and two ounces of butter. So that kind of promotes margarine. And the actions of the government, while they were designed to alleviate starvation in the Second World War, did absolutely ruin the British dairy industry, cheese as well as butter. It's been very, very slow to recover. We've really laid it on thick, haven't we? We've really milked this subject. Uh, <laughs> Um, We've got our teeth into it, haven't we? We, we literally have. There's so many, <laughs> so many great puns that you can do. It's a salty subject. <laughs> Absolutely. Lastly, though, Annie, what does the evidence of butter production at English heritage sites tell us about the importance of butter in English food history? I think the thing about the English heritage sites, certainly the ones that we've discussed, is they really showcase the changing nature of dairies. So if you visited all the English heritage sites with dairies, you'd be able to go from ornamental dairies that were visited by ladies of the house through to integrated buildings through to fully commercial dairies. It isn't the whole history, but it's quite a good part of it. And it does show the way in which butter was not only absolutely integral to British food, but also to British society, I think. Because I think the other thing we need to remember is that while a lot of these dairies were designed by, and indeed worked in by, aristocrats, you've always got a dairy maid in them. We should never, ever forget about the dairy maids who worked in them, the cowmen who milked the cows, and the fact that these are spaces which don't just have an aristocratic history, but also have a history which really does cut through society very vertically. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be looking at the history of windows as part of a £1 million appeal to conserve 13,000 of them. There might have been a slightly vulnerable period in the windows. That now is starting to have an impact where the windows are becoming a bit more stressed by the weather. They need maintenance on a more regular basis than they might have historically. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>